This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. This is Sci-Fi Talk Weekly for August 10th, 2023. I look around the internet for news on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics. And here are this week's headlines. Remembering William Friedkin. Star Trek musical tops the charts. Saw 10, set in Mexico. An explanation. Marvel effects artists want to unionize. That and more in a moment. Deadline has a story with Linda Blair calling her Exorcist director William Friedkin a genius, a maverick, a game changer, and the man who changed my life forever. She posted this on Instagram and added, Billy Friedkin was a game changer. Thought outside the box, he was a genius with an incredibly bold personality and extraordinary imagery that electrified colleagues and moviegoers alike and remained a true maverick throughout his career in the film industry. He passed away at age 87. One of the things I admired about him, he always wanted to do a backward car chase on the Los Angeles freeway. And he accomplished that in his film To Live and Die in L.A. If you've seen that scene, it's absolutely amazing. And he had been planning it for years. Screen Rant reports that songs from Star Trek Strange New Worlds episode, Subspace Rhapsody, have been topping all the streaming charts. Not unusual, they're great songs. It's number one in the top 100 soundtracks and number three in the top 100 albums. The song, Status Report, has reached number seven on the iTunes song list. My interview with choreographer Roberto Campanella is this week's Trek Tuesday. You gotta check that out. Deadline reports that Saw 10, yes, there's going to be another one, is being set in Mexico. Director Kevin Gruder said during a fan Q&A, according to Direct, there's such a mythology, the city is so amazing, we can't speak enough about it. Not just that, there's a certain creepiness to it and a certain history, and it's absolutely worked for us. The film is set between Saw 1 and Saw 2, as John Kramer goes to Mexico for an experimental cancer treatment, which turns out to be a scam. Oh boy. Variety reports that Marvel visual effects artists have voted to unionize. Here is part of their press release. A supermajority of Marvel's more than 50 worker crews have authorization cards indicating they wish to be represented by the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE for short. For almost half a century, workers in the visual effects industry have been denied the same protections and benefits from their co-workers and crewmates have relied upon since the beginning of the Hollywood film industry. This according to Mark Patch, who is the VFX organizer for IATSE. In a statement announcing the filing, said this is a historic step for VFX workers coming together with a collective voice and demanding respect for the work we do. The Inverse reports that the David Ayer Suicide Squad cut might see the light of day. The director said on the former Twitter, now X, James Gunn told me it would have its time to be shared. He believes that DC Studios needs to grow first before fixing old mistakes. The studio cut is not my movie. Read that again. And my cut is not the 10-week director's cut. It's a fully mature edit by Lee Smith, standing on the incredible work by John Gilroy, 
It's all Stephen Price's brilliant score with not a single radio song in the whole thing. Good things might be worth waiting for, I think. In other DC news, in the comics, Screen Rant reports that Batman the Brave and the Bold number three has the shadiest superhero team, as the article says, in gathering anti-Justice League weapons. It's written by Ed Brisson with art and colors by Jeff Spokes and letters by Sadia Temofonte. The Stormwatch is stockpiling weapons that can neutralize members of the Justice League. Could Stormwatch be a front for Amanda Waller's organization? Eh, it's in the pages. In the movies, especially, how do you move on from Thanos? Maybe at least in my mind, being Marvel's ultimate villain. Screen Rant has a candidate in Galacticus. Phase 6 is scheduled to arrive in 2025 with a Fantastic Four movie. Casting is delayed for the movie due to the strikes, which I wholeheartedly support. These people should get paid what they deserve. That's the way I see it. There is the Kang Dynasty, with or without Jonathan Majors as Kang's variants. The case for Galacticus, he, as the article writes, he roams the universe seeking out planets to devour with the help of his heralds, and after finding one, simply appears in the sky, bringing imminent and unprecedented destruction. Galacticus would be an excellent villain to feature in Fantastic Four, but not before. But what about Doctor Doom? There's more Sci-Fi Talk Weekly, so stay tuned. Giant Freakin' Robot writes about a Star Trek mystery explored in the Trek short Calypso. A man wakes up on the Discovery, which is now empty, and has been that way for almost a millennia. Zora, which has integrated itself into Discovery as a computer system, is the sole survivor. But of what? Did the crew leave the ship as Captain instructed Zora to hold Discovery's position? Why would Burnham order this? Or did she? Hopefully Season 5 has some of those answers. Deadline reviews The Meg 2. And they write, at first, everything about The Meg 2, the trench, appears bigger and stronger. And now it's apparent the producers look to have a major money-making franchise on their hands. Unfortunately, these same producers, along with their collaborators, have for some reason stinted in the creation of any worthy supporting players to fill out the cast and seem uninterested in character building or even finding distinctive young actors to fill out the crew. Meg 2 wears out its welcome very early on, as it begins feeling like a tedious, repetitive joke. More on this Red Pencil Review at Deadline.com. You know, I always like these top 10 lists that people put out, and Collider has one on the 10 best Lord of the Rings characters ranked by bravery. Here are a few. King Theoden, and they write, when the beacons were lit and Gondor called for help, Theoden realized the war was unavoidable and mustered the Rohirrim to ride to their aid. Despite his hatred of conflict, he knew that Sauron had to be defeated and gave his life to achieve it. And next is Mary Doc Mary Brandebuck. Like most hobbits, Mary had a love of a good food, pipeweed, and ale, but he still chose to join the Fellowship on their quest although it would mean a lot of danger and privations. And that wasn't the end of his bravery. He pledged his allegiance to Theoden 
and went into the Battle of Pelennor Fields, even though he had been ordered to stay behind. This meant that he could stab the Witch King and distract him long enough for Eowyn to land the fatal blow. That's a great scene, isn't it? Peregrine Pippin Took is the next one. And, and they write, The youngest of the hobbits, Pippin often got himself and the fellowship into trouble, like when he alerted the orcs to their presence in Moria. Nevertheless, he was a strong character and didn't give up easily. And lastly, Faramir. Interesting. The younger of Denethor's sons, Faramir often lived in the shadow of his older brother. But when Boromir went to join the Fellowship, he was forced to take his place, leading Gondor's army against Sauron's forces. After Denethor found out about Boromir's death, he went into despair and gave up hope, not caring what happened to his other son. This led Faramir riding out on a hopeless mission to resake the city of Asgiliath, hoping that he might gain some of his father's favor. There is more at Collider.com. Number one, surprise me, your humble reader, and might you, my listeners as well. It's a great list, and it makes you think, and it really tells you that these characters were pretty strong. And back next Thursday, this is Tony Tolado. As always, thanks for listening.